All right, let's pick up with week number three of this uh, series we've been in. If you're just now joining us, maybe you're here for the first time today. We've been in a teaching series for, this is now the third week, and it's entitled, In the Beginning, God. And our, our text scripture is here in Genesis chapter one, verse number one. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then if you were to go through and read the rest of chapter one, it goes through and it enumerates all the different things God created it lists the different order in which he created those things. He gets down to the end of chapter 1, and verse 31 says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everybody shout, very good. Very good. Everybody shout, very good. very good. Now, here's our quote I want you to grab hold of. God is good, and everything good in our lives begins with God. Well, let me say it again. God is good, and everything good in our lives begins with God. That means that it is, we've established that it is imperative that we put God first in everything we do because God is the shield. He's our buckler. He's our defense uh, against all the unnecessary delays, all the unnecessary drama, and all the unnecessary disaster that can come our way when we're trying to do things our own way. I mean, life is a lot better when we put God first instead of putting us first. But I may also know that there are a lot of things in our lives that if we're honest with ourselves, we started off with our own idea, what we really want, how we want it to turn out. And then we invite God in down the line when we realize it's not working like we thought and it's not turning out the way we want it. We invite God in to come and bless it, to come and fix it, come and turn it around. The truth of the matter is life is a whole lot better when we bring God in at the very beginning and we ask him, Lord, what would you like me to do? And then last week, we went back and kind of added another piece to it. The fact that in the beginning, God created a rhythm to life. God created a rhythm to life. God created hot and cold, not just cold. God created summer and winter. God created day and night. There's a rhythm that God created to life, and there's a rhythm that God expects for us to have in our lives. There needs to be a rhythm to how we do our work. Shout amen, somebody. How many know it cannot be all work, 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 work? If you do that, you're going to wear yourself out. But how I many know it also cannot be all rest, 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 or you're going to get fired. <laughs> so there's got to be a rhythm to how we do our work. There's got to be a rhythm we talked about last week to how we rest, which means rest is not a luxury. It is a necessity. It is something that God created. He gave us the example. The Bible says in six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested from all of his labor. Now, God didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't rest because he needed to re-energize. I believe he rested to give us an example that we're not supposed to burn the candle at both ends. We're not supposed to run ourselves raggedy. Give me an amen, somebody. I believe in every, in every seven-day cycle, there needs to be at least one of those days that we set aside to truly rest. That means we're not returning emails. We're not calling folks back to talk about work stuff. We're not only resting physically, but we're also resting mentally and emotionally. And I believe that one of the reasons why we have so many issues of mental health and we have so many people when our bodies are breaking down is because we're treating these bodies in a way that God never intended for us to treat them. And if you're like me, I used to be one of those people who used to boast and brag about how I haven't had a vacation in X number of years. Ha, 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 ha. And and off day, what's an off day? Ha, 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 ha. It was funny until I realized I was sinning against God. I was sinning because God gave me this body as a gift. Come on, somebody say gift. 
and he expects for this body to last long enough for me to fulfill everything he put me on this planet to do. And when I just run his body raggedy without resting it, without giving it a chance to have a break, without giving it a chance to recalibrate and recuperate, then I'm not damaging my property, I'm damaging his property. And so I've learned now that I've got to have a Sabbath, I've got to have a Shabbat. It doesn't have to be Friday evening to Saturday like the Jews happen to do. But there needs to be a day during our seven-day week cycle that we set aside to on purpose unplug and give ourselves a chance to rest. Can I get an amen, somebody? And it also means that we need to have this beautiful word called vacation. I just knew I would have got a bigger amen than that. You let your job try to take away that vacation, you get a better amen than that. We, we all need vacation. And, and, and when I say vacation, I'm talking about vacating from your normal life. That means that for me, vacation is not going to a conference to learn some more about spiritual stuff or work stuff. I mean, a vacation is also not going to the family reunion. Come on, you need, you need to get paid to go to the family reunion, really. You ought to be able to clock in when we get to the park. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about vacay. Go somewhere where you can mentally and physically have a chance to rest. And third area we talked about last week that we got to get our rhythm back is our rhythm for worship. One of the downfalls of this whole COVID season that we've kind of fought ourselves through is that we had to adjust our lives so much for COVID and we had to unplug and avoid big crowds and things like that to where now there's some people that have gotten to the place where they're back in crowds at movie theaters and back in crowds at work but still allow every excuse under the sun to keep us from making it to the church on a consistent basis. And again, it's not a matter of judgment. I'm not trying to say the church is the end-all, be-all, but there's something to be said about corporate worship. There's something to be said about coming together with other believers, and we need to make sure we get back into a solid rhythm for our worship. Can I get an amen, somebody? Today, I want to spend some time talking to you about, in the beginning, God created family. In the beginning, God created family. Listen to this. God has always been interested in family. In fact, it's what he's always wanted. God didn't want servants. He wanted sons and daughters. That's why our main mission as the body of Christ is to enlarge the family of God. From the very beginning, God has called families to bring about his plan in the earth. See, when humanity was facing extinction, God called a family, not angels, to build an ark for him. Later on, God called Abraham to start a family that would become a series of nations. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God said this to Abram. He said, in you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. When it was time for Jesus, our Savior, to be born, God chose a family to bring him into the earth. In fact, it mattered to God that Joseph, Jesus' stepdad, didn't just walk away from the family. It also mattered to God that Abraham and Sarah's marriage could be fruitful. God didn't accept that they were too old or that they were past their prime or they were too far gone. God did a miracle with Abraham and Sarah. And watch this. He's still doing miracles in families today. Come on, I need a better amen than that. I said God is still doing miracles in families today. In fact, I'm going to be so bold as to make this declaration. I believe God's going to do some miracles in some families sitting in here right now today. This is my third service. Now, I've heard from every service before this one that that's the word our family needed, uh, Pastor. God is setting some things back online and back in course. And I'm declaring for this service, God's getting ready to do some miracles in here for some families as well right here today, man. He is a miracle-working God. Listen to this. 
family mattered to God in the beginning, and I want you to know it still matters to God today. That's the reason why it's no wonder that Satan seems obsessed, I mean absolutely obsessed with the destruction of the nuclear family. When you look around, you can see that he's constantly attacking God's idea of family. Can I tell you, family is God's idea, it's not the world's idea. Family is not the devil's idea. Family is not the Democrats or the Republicans' idea. So God is not asking for a vote for people to tell him what family is or should be. Family is God's idea. And it's no wonder that Satan is constantly attacking God's idea of family with movements against parental rights, with society demanding that we ignore God's biological design for human beings and make gender about how we feel more than how God created us. It's no wonder we see all this about absentee parents, uh, absentee fathers and absentee mothers, the oppression of poor families that limits their access to a living wage and quality education and health care and child care. For many people, we, we view these from the lens of political issues. And so we end up taking a side one way or the other based on which party we choose to, to go with. But the reality is, hear me out, these are not political issues. These are issues that if you look at it from a spiritual bent and put your spiritual filter on, you'll understand that these are issues that directly affect the enemy trying to attack the foundation God put on the earth called the family. And the end result of that is this. You have many families today that are dysfunctional because they do not know how God designed them to actually function. So part of what I want to spend my time today doing is giving you a few principles that I think are necessary if we're going to have a functional family instead of a dysfunctional family. The first one is this, families communicate. Families communicate. Tell your neighbor, families communicate. Tell your other neighbor, say, neighbor, say other, neighbor. other neighbor, families communicate. Families communicate. Tell the one behind you, families communicate. <laughs> Touch the one on the shoulder in front of until the neighbors communicate. <laughs> so if you're not laughing, it means you weren't here on Friday night. <laughs> families communicate. And when I'm talking about family, yeah, we're talking about the nuclear family, the husband and the wife and the kids, but can, can we just acknowledge that family goes beyond just the people with your same last name? Anybody willing to acknowledge there's some friends that have become more family than people that got your same blood? So what I, what I want to give you today, what I want to teach you today, this works not only for your biological family, it works also for your family of friends. It works for a church family. Come on, it works for a small group family. It can work for a work family. These principles that help make us a solid family and things that the enemy is constantly attacking, if we do these things God's way, we can have a functional family instead of a dysfunctional one. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, this is what Jesus said. He said, if your brother sins against you, watch this, go and do what? Come on, go and do what? Confront him. Watch this, watch this, while the two of you are what? Come on, while the two of you are what? If your brother offends you, if your brother makes you mad, if your brother does something you don't like, if your brother does something that ticks you off, the Bible says go and have a confrontation. We'll talk about that in a minute. Go and confront him. Watch this while the two of you are alone, which means the Bible doesn't say go and post it on your social media page. I'm just pointing it out because... I mean, you know, anytime we do the opposite of what the Bible says, that's really the definition of sin. And we have a tendency to blow up the big sins 
But one of the most violated scriptures in the Bible is this one right here. Because the Bible says, if I have a problem with my brother, I'm supposed to go to my brother, just the two of us. That means I'm not supposed to tell the rest of the family about the issue I have with my brother. Until I've had a chance to go and talk to my brother alone. The Bible says, if he listens to you, then you will have won your brother back. So the Bible says, if your brother offends you, then confront him. We got to break down the definition of confront to make sure we're all on the same page. Because some of y'all are like, yeah, that's what I wanted to do anyway. <laughs> that, somebody's like, that's the scripture I've been looking for, Pastor. <laughs> when you look up the definition of confront, confront is a verb. So you have, you have to look at it. There's several different definitions of confront. The first one I'm going to read is the one we don't want you to use. The first definition of confront says to meet someone face-to-face with hostile or argumentative intent. That's the wrong definition. Everybody say, that's the wrong definition. We don't want you, we don't want you, we don't want you coming out like this. Yeah. Don't meet them with hostile or argumentative intent. The one we want you to use is the second definition. Confront means to face up to and to deal with a problem or a difficult situation. Families communicate. And with families communicating, if my brother offends me, the Bible says to go and confront him or her, which means go and face up to, acknowledge that we have a difficult situation going on here and attempt to work through it. See, what the Bible is saying is we got to get out of this mode of being mad at people and they don't know we're mad at them or they don't, they don't know why we're mad at them. And a confrontation does not have to be ugly. Really, can I give you my definition of confrontation? A confrontation is to have a clash of ideas. If I'm getting ready to walk off a cliff and I don't know it, I want you to confront me. I want you to have a clash of ideas so I can recognize that I'm getting ready to make a decision that could really end poorly for me. And I might want to consider turning around. I don't want you to say, well, I don't want to bother him. And I'm getting ready to step over the edge of a cliff and destroy my entire life. See, confrontation is not bad. And one of the things we got to get better at as the body of Christ is understanding when I have a problem with somebody, the Bible commands me. It's not a suggestion. It's not if you think this is okay. The Bible commands me to have a conversation with the actual person I have a problem with instead of talking to social media about it, instead of posting some veiled post that nobody's supposed to know who I'm talking about. And instead of poisoning three or four other people, because what tends to happen in our society, because we live in a society that has such a spirit of cowardice. And I think the cowardice comes from, we we deal with so much low esteem, low self-esteem, and low self-worth, that we have a tendency to want to talk to somebody else about it for the purpose of getting them on our side. I'm preaching better than you saying amen. So we try to get to the cousins first or get to the other siblings first and tell them our version of it because the goal is to get them to side with us and see it from our point of view. The only reason I need you to see it from my point of view is I need your validation that I'm right. Well, the reality is if I'm not trying to prove I'm right, I'm just trying to bridge the gap and fix the problem. I don't need to tell everybody else. I just need to talk to the one I actually have an issue with. Amen. Now, I happen to be actually pretty good at this because I, I am a, naturally a confrontational person. You, don't, you, you didn't even say all like you didn't believe that. 
That didn't even seem far-fetched to you. <laughs> I don't know how to take that, right? But I've learned over the years, I used to just be a fighter, man. But I've learned over the years that I'm, it's better for me to address situations and not have people wonder. I don't like, my, my staff knows, you don't have to wonder if I'm okay with what you're doing. If I have a problem with what you're doing or how you're doing your job, I love you enough, then I'm going to let you know it. I'm not going to let you know in an ugly way. I'm, going, I'm not going to belittle you. I'm not going to down you in public in front of other people. But I'm going to make sure that you don't walk away thinking I'm okay with this when really I'm not okay with it. And I really believe that we owe the people in our lives the, the value of being honest with them. See, some people think that it's, it's walking in love to sweep it under the rug and just don't say anything. The problem is nobody can handle that for a long time. And what happens with some people, they, they, they don't, don't want to confront anything, so they just kind of take it and they take it, and they take it, and they take it, then one day you just explode. And everybody's trying to figure out, what in the world is wrong with you? And it's not the one thing that happened today. It's the 25 things you refuse to address along the way that have now built up and become like a volcano, and now it just explodes all over the place. See, to, to walk around saying that I, I, I don't have a problem is not loving somebody, is lying. And we've got to get better at being able to be honest enough, speaking the truth in love. Can I get an amen, somebody? Here's a quote for you. Dysfunctional families act out what really needs to be talked out. In dysfunctional families, people end up acting out, giving the silent treatment. I'm I'm not dealing with you. I'm not cooking dinner tonight. You ain't getting none of this tonight. They hit somebody in the shot now, didn't it? <laughs> that was a little too close to home. I'm sorry. <laughs> in dysfunctional family environments, we end up acting out things that really should be talked out. See, in our family units, we got to get better at talking to each other instead of about each other. That means husbands and wives, wives in particular, be sure that you don't ever let you and your husband get into an argument and you run and talk to your mother about it. Don't get me wrong. If you ever find yourself in an abusive situation where you think you could be physically harmed, you need to tell somebody else about that. But if it's just a run-of-the-mill, everyday marriage argument stuff, the last thing you can afford to do is go and tell your mama what your husband Charles did, did wrong. You're trying to reach Charles, and he's told me coming right home from work. He don't make it home from work. And you call your mama. I don't know where he is, mama. I think, I think the boy fooling around. I, I, I got my suspicions. I, I saw, you know, I saw this on This Is Us. And then your mama, uh-huh, I watched that episode too. Then <laughs> Charles make it home, you find out his phone battery died and he came straight home from work. GPS shows he came straight home from work. And now you and Charles make up. Y'all good, but mama still remember. And then Charles come for Thanksgiving dinner. He walk in the house, your mama look like. And she give him a little tiny scoop of dressing. <laughs> Why? Because you and Charles are made up. Y'all forgot mama still remembers what you told her because you poisoned her thinking. Huh? Along the same line, watch this. Parents should not talk bad about the other parent because that's that kid's parent. Don't talk through the kids. You know the reason why Christmas is going to be crazy this year? Because your daddy crazy. 
That's why you ain't getting nothing, because your daddy crazy. <laughs> April and I have kind of purpose. You know, we've been married this year, July, this, this year, made 30 years for us married together. Married for 30 years. We celebrated all year long. And people see us, I mean, we, we are not fantasy. We're not make-believe. We, we, we are real. I'm, I'm probably sometimes more transparent than I should be. But I, I, don't, I don't like being a preacher that people put up on some pedestal and think that we get everything just right and it's just easy for us. And they just wake up and their clothes are on and <laughs> hair is done. Right? We're a regular couple. We, we really do have a good marriage, but it's like, it still has its challenges which means we still disagree. We came from two different families, and over the years, our perspectives have gotten so much closer, but we still don't always think alike. And there, there's sometimes, I think she should have done something one way, she does a different way. She thinks I should have done something a certain way, I did a different way. And so we have clashes, we have disagreements, we have arguments. And it's weird, because it feels like the older we get, the more we're bumping heads. And again, I'm confrontational, so I'm going to bring it out, not in a bad way, but I'm going to say what I'm feeling and thinking. Like, that ain't going to work, babe. That, that, we can't do that. No. Why would, why would you do that? And what we've learned how to do is that we don't want to paint a bad picture to our kids. We don't want them to think that their parents' marriage was, was rosy. We never disagreed. And we just drift off into the bedroom and close the door and argue in silence. You make I can't stand you. You might have to come out. <laughs> we go through what we go through with, with them right there. But also in 30 years, watch this. We have never called each other out of our name. Never. I would never call her something other than what her parents named her or one of the, the pet names I have. We don't get mad and get emotional to the point where we're trying to hurt each other. But we do disagree. And we don't have a problem with our kids hearing us disagree. They know us enough to know they're good. If one of y'all was a sis, y'all be like, oh, shoot. <laughs> they know we're good. <laughs> and what happens is they see us disagree, sometimes passionately, then they see us 30 minutes later, hugged up, kissing each other, ha- you know, hanging out, because we don't let stuff roll over, but we also don't want them to walk away thinking, marriage is easy as long as you're Christian. We want them to get a good picture that marriage takes work, marriage requires communication. Second thing, families must spend time together. Families must spend time together. Psalm 68, verse 6, it says, God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy, but he makes the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. The implication we get here when the Bible says that God sets the lonely inside of families is that we should not feel lonely once we become a part of a family. God's expecting that if you got family members around you, we shouldn't feel lonely when we have family with us. But I can't tell you how many people still feel lonely even with a crowd around them. And it's one of the reasons why I continually admonish and challenge my single people that be sure you slow down and don't just jump into a marriage because you love them right now. Take enough time to date long enough to see them in different situations to see how they interact with their family members, see how they interact with their friends, see how they interact when they feel sad, see how they interact during different seasons of the year. See how, to, wait until you've had a chance to see him or her get upset. If you've never seen them upset, you're not ready to marry them yet. Because you want to know when they get upset, do they explode and blow, and, and blow up? Do they disappear for five days and won't talk to me? They give you the silent treatment? Because what ends up happening is if you don't know enough of those things, you end up marrying somebody. And I want to say to you single people, I know we're, we're, we're in this season where we're getting ready to head toward the fall again. The weather's going to cool off and 
It makes you want to cuff up, you know, get into that cuffing season and, and that feeling of love start coming off. But the problem is when you rush and marry somebody because you're feeling lonely, it can be worse. See, there is some, hear me out, there is something worse than being single and lonely. It's called being married and lonely. And the way to avoid that is to make sure you slow down and know indeed who you're marrying. See, husbands and wives have got to prioritize their time alone together if we expect to maintain or reignite intimacy in our marriages. It is impossible to ignite or reignite intimacy in our marriage if we're not spending quality time together. In fact, Dr. Willard Harley, he's the author of His Needs, Her Needs, a great book. I recommend it to everybody, every married couple. His Needs, Her Needs. He said, time for undivided attention is the necessary ingredient for everything that's important in marriage. Everything that's important in marriage, you've got to have this ingredient of undivided time spent together. That means time where we're not on our phones, we're not jumping up to go answer a call, we're not responding to messages and hang, hang on one second, baby. Every marriage need to have some time that's dedicated to each other where you don't have all these outside forces vying for your time and attention. Most of you know, many of you know that in 2016, our, our oldest child, our daughter Kerrigan, uh, went through a bone marrow transplant. And we, we chose to do the bone marrow transplant in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, was, you know, there at, at, at the Emory Children's Hospital, there's one of the best in the country at, at the bone marrow transplant. So we chose to do it there. Uh, everything went great with the bone marrow, but what that meant was we had two sons who were still in school here. Didn't want to pull them out of school and disrupt their whole life. So that means that at all times, one of us needed to be in Atlanta with our daughter, and one of us needed to be here in Jacksonville with our sons. And literally every week, one of us, I would usually spend the earlier part of the week there in Atlanta, in the hospital with Kerrigan, make sure everything's well. April would be here, making sure the boys got off to school, everything was taken care of. Latter part of the week, I would switch with her so I could be here for the weekend, because if you were around, you remember, I didn't miss very many Sundays still. And so I, I would come to Jacksonville. She would go to Atlanta to be with Kerrigan. And there were literally times we'd meet at the airport on the tarmac. Uh, we'd high-five each other, kiss each other. She's going to be with Kerrigan. I'm on the plane heading back here to Jacksonville. But it all worked out. Our daughter's well. But what happened is we realized in, in January of 2017, I realized that we're not as close as we were. And, you know, we were starting to have friction unnecessarily, and it was lingering longer than it normally would. And the Lord kind of showed me that the reason why that's happening is because you all have become transactional. You're like two ships in the night. You're, taking, you're spending so much time taking care of the kids, understandably, and the church, understandably, that you don't have time for each other. Now, watch, I'm going to teach you a lesson here because the Bible says the, the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. He'll show us things to come. That doesn't mean that an angel's going to show up and there's going to be smoke in the middle of your bedroom. What it means is that the Holy Spirit will give you a little prompting to help you make a change so this little thing today don't become a major thing six months from now. I, I clearly knew he was talking to me, so guess what I did? I made a decision right then that I was going to reinstate something that we used to have early on in our marriage, which was a weekly date night. So from that time on, 2017, so it's been six and a half years now, every Thursday night is date night for the two of us. We date, every, we date every Thursday night, and I want you to get this because I don't mean, you know, we do it when it's convenient. I don't mean that we, you know, we, we try to get it in. No, 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 no. Every Thursday night is date night, and it is just as holy to us as Sunday morning church worship is. That means that there's a lot of Thursdays I come home and I am dog tired. A lot of times I've just flown in from somewhere, but we still don't go out. 
This past Thursday, we took our son back to college, got him set up in his apartment, and I was tempted to just get on the road and drive back so I could sleep in my own bed. But I said, no, what? you know, if I do that, we're going to be on the road all night long driving. So we got a hotel room down there in South Florida so we could have our date night down there. And then got up the next morning and drove back. I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. And I, I'm talking to you about a 30-year marriage that is strong today. But I recognize that that is not a luxury. It is maintenance. And if we get away from quality time together, even a 30-year strong marriage can start to crumble because you don't end up having enough love in the love bank to deal with all the withdrawals that come from every single marriage. And for, for a lot of marriages, that, that is the problem. That is the problem. There's nothing wrong with him, nothing wrong with her. You are still amazing people. You're just as amazing as you were on your wedding day when you thought the best for this marriage. The problem is what has happened is your marriage has gone bankrupt. Every marriage has a credit and a debit account. Tough days, tough conversations, difficult things with your kids require withdrawals from the love bank. Every marriage is going to deal with them. I don't care how amazing the two of you are. You're going to take some withdrawals. But every time you spend quality time together, you have vacation. You make memories. You have conversations that allow you to go deeper. You compliment each other. You're making deposits into the love bank. And it's simple math. You got to make more deposits than withdrawals. Just like your regular bank account. You keep going there taking money out if you want to. You can walk up there one day going, uh, no, no. You're going to put your little code in, it's going to say insufficient funds. Same thing with your marriage. Your marriage can have insufficient love funds to deal with the next issue that shows up if you don't on purpose make some deposits. I can't tell you how many couples I have counseled in 30 years where I ask them, when's the last time y'all been on a date? Uh, uh, baby, baby, when was that? Uh, uh, you, you know, we, we, we went to the uh, cheesecake. I mean, you remember what the, say, oh, our anniversary? Yeah, we went. We, anniversaries don't count. You have to go out on your anniversary. The best way to make some investments into your love bank is to establish a regular every single week routine of making sure the two of you get it. It doesn't have to be a fancy restaurant every time. Sometimes we'll go to the beach and take a walk. Sometimes we'll go and do a little painting with a twist. Sometimes we'll go to a museum. Sometimes we'll just go sit and talk and do nothing in particular. But it's the habit of having undivided attention that lets us put more love into the love bank. Come on, that's good. You got to admit that's good. You got to admit that's good. That's good. And the same thing is true even when it comes to our kids. When you're raising your minor children, you got to spend time with them. Kids spell love, T-I-M-E. And M-O-N-E-Y. They do. That's how they spell, that's how they spell love. And if you don't invest time in our kids, the Bible says to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition. Admonition is the warning, the instruction, the correction. But if, if all they ever get is the admonition and the correction without the nurturing, at some point the admonition and correction falls on deaf ears. And people tend to think that kids hate correction. They actually don't. Actually, children love correction. They don't love how it feels in a moment, but kids love correction. What they don't love is when all they get is correction and they get no love. They get correction, they don't get any compliments. They get yelled at for the D, but they don't get applauded for the A. What they don't like is when the correction is inconsistent. Some days you correct them for this, some days you let them get away with it. Some days you make a big deal out of this, other days, ah, no problem. 
Kids love correction. In fact, when they get older, if they haven't been properly correct, they'll actually resent you because you didn't love them enough to put some borders around them. Amen? Remember I told you Psalm 68, 6 says, God places the lonely in families. Can I just add this twist to it? Impact church is more than a church. It's a family too. And I want to look in your eyes and tell you this, that if you are in this city, maybe you don't have any other family here, or maybe you got a ton of family here, but you're not close to your family. Don't ever sit and allow yourself to be lonely. This is a family for you. Get plugged into one of our small groups. Get plugged into a department serving here. Our dream teams, our dream teams are designed to be more than just people who do work here at the church. It's designed to be, it's on purpose that if we can get you into on a dream team, we've caught you. And what I mean by that, we've, we've caught you where it's going to be hard for you to just slip through the cracks. It's going to be hard for you to end up in trouble and nobody know you're in trouble. So if you're here in this city, you don't have people you can call family. I'm telling you, don't let another Thanksgiving go by where you eat dinner by yourself. Go out to that hub when we finish today. Find a small group. Get plugged into them. Our small groups do more for people in their time of bereavement and to help them through difficulties. Some of our small groups go on vacations together. What I'm saying, when God puts you in a church that is family-centric, he doesn't do that for you to still walk around and be all by yourself and feel lonely. The third thing that every family needs, we need to recognize that families have got to have each other's back. Families have got to have each other's back. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says, two people are better off than one, for they can't help, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two people standing back to back can conquer. Three are even better because a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Listen to this. Families are supposed to fight back to back, not head to head. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying family's supposed to be your safe space. Some of you are old enough to remember being, being playing, playing tag when you're growing up, and there was always a place we called glue. It's usually like somebody's porch or the big oak tree. And somebody's tracing you down and you're running from them. If you can just make it to that porch, sometimes you'd be running, you just dive on the porch. You can turn around and, <laughs> wow, I'm on glue. You can't mess with me, I'm on glue. When I make it to the big oak tree, I'm glue. You can't touch me, I'm on glue. Family is supposed to be glue. If I can just get to my people, I'm supposed to be safe. And sometimes, unfortunately, because the body of Christ, we've listened to the world's philosophy so much, sometimes family is the worst place you can be. Sometimes you feel more hurt with family than you do with other people you don't know. The Bible says we're supposed to go back to back and dare somebody to come at us. Because if you come at us, you have made a bad decision. You're not going to fight just one of us. You're going to fight all of us. Everybody remember that family you grew up with, like the Jacksons or the Johnsons? or the Browns, it was like 95 of them. <laughs> and you knew the little bitty one talked junk, and you want to dust him off. But you knew, boy, you hit him. <laughs> you can do it with JoJo, and Tyrone, and Pookie, and Junebug, and Shamisha. 
we're the body of Christ inside of our family. We're supposed to stand back to back. One of the, one of the things we said to our kids as they were growing up is that we are the Davises. We stick together. Which means we ain't going to let y'all fight each other. And our kids have grown up that way, man. You know, they still have their arguments, their kids. They have their moments where they can't stand each other. But let somebody else from the outside attack one of them. That's, that's our family, man. That's the way we're wired. You, you're not going to love me and hate my wife. It's just not going to happen. You're going to put a wedge in between. If you don't like her, you don't like me either. If you don't fool with her, you don't fool with me either. Let me find out you don't fool with me. I might use the wrong confront on you. <laughs> Get my definitions twisted. <laughs> you ain't going to like me but just can't stand my daughter or my sons. You have a right to, but it's going to eliminate how close we can be. Because nobody's going to come in and put a wedge in between those that I call family. We're back to back. We're back to back against the world. There's a circle drawn. And we're not going to let anything from the outside tear apart what God has created on the inside. Amen? Come on, I said amen. It's important for married couples to not allow that divorce word just be thrown around frivolously. Let yourself get emotional and I'm leaving you. I never wanted to marry you. I never loved you. Then come back and apologize the next day. I shouldn't have said that. Hear me out when I, I want to give you this ending quote. It is possible and it's even appropriate to apologize. when We've said something or done something that is hurtful, but we've got to watch our actions because we got to also realize there is some damage that is not able to be undone, even with an apology. There's some things that I've forgiven you, I've I've forgiven you, but I can't forget what you said. I'm still scarred by the fact that that's all it took for you to say you was walking out. We got to get better at recognizing we got to stick together, man. I'm I'm with you to the end. I constantly reiterate to my wife, I'm with you to, to the end. I don't ever want the enemy to use anything that I've said, done, any thought, anything she's seeing on TV. I don't want the enemy to use anything to make her think there's a thought in my mind that it might not be us. For the good, for the bad, man. We rocking this thing out. We stand back to back. Friends ought to be that way too, man. You know, earlier, the earlier services, the whole All for Christ group was here, the earlier service. And then at the second service, one of the guys stayed over because he's staying here till tomorrow. The rest of them had to fly back. And the one that stayed over has been my, my, one of my closest friends since high school. We were roommates in college together. We pledged a fraternity together. I told her at the 10 a.m., I, I, I'm the only reason he made it through. <laughs> it's not quite true, but I got the mic so I can say what I want to say. <laughs> but about a month and a half ago, his 28-year-old son died tragically. And uh, no parent should ever have to bury their kid. Ever have to bury their kid. And so it was obviously hard for him, man. And, and obviously I flew up to make sure I was there for the service. And, but I'm a pastor, so I know how this thing works. I know that the toughest time is not before the funeral, it's after the funeral. When everybody goes home, everybody gets back to their normal life. So after the funeral, I'm t- talking to him all the time. I'm watching him. We're having these long conversations, and, and we're watching his social media posts. And April said, oh, I, think, I, think, I think you need to get up there to see him. So I set aside a few days, about five days, flew up there, and just didn't even tell the rest of my family I was there. I just got in the city so I could be there. Every time he was off work, I was available if you need to be here. So we hung out, we talked, we laughed, we drove around the city, we reminisced. And over that time, God started breathing life back into him. Until now, he couldn't wait to fly down here, hang out, spend this weekend. 
And he's walk, walking away saying, man, God has just breathed so much life. There's still a process. This is a grieving process. It's not over. But friends are supposed to be there not just when we're hanging out and having fun. Friends are supposed to be there to go back to back and not let grief take you out because I was too busy to notice how hard this was for you. We all need friends. We all need family. And we all need friends that become family. <laughs> and we all need to make sure we do a good job of taking care of the people in our life that we call family. If you believe that, give God a praise in this place. All right, look up here at me for a moment. Don't, don't leave yet. Please don't leave yet unless, unless you have to. You've got to get off to work so I understand. But what if? What if you walked out of here right now and you hit the parking lot, you breathe in, took your last breath? Do you know where you go? I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm not trying to scare you. But sometimes I don't think we think. We just assume we got a lot of time. And the one thing I want to make sure we all do is walk around. I don't plan to go for a long time, but I'm ready if I had to. And the question is, are you ready? Do you know where you go? Is your life right with God? I don't mean are you doing everything right because the key to salvation is not getting to heaven and hoping that your good works outweigh your bad works. The key to salvation is making a decision to confess and believe in your heart Jesus Christ is your Lord. That means I give him total control of my life. I'm willing to let him command and tell me what to do, what adjustments to make, and I believe in my heart that God is raising from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. That's all it takes. I know churches have piled on other stuff. You got to stop doing this and stop doing that and promise God you'll be better here. God didn't ask for any of that. He asked you to confess Jesus as your Lord, believe in your heart God is raising from the dead. You'll be saved. Then he'll put you into a church family so you can be taught how to get better at this thing called life. So if you've been confused and you thought you had to fix all this stuff, but now you realize that today's your day, you're ready to give your life to the Lord, I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to come up here to the front right there at your seat or right there online. I want to lead you in a simple prayer, but it'll revolutionize your life if you mean this with all your heart. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are. Close your eyes for just a moment. Don't look around if you would. But if you are here today and you say, yes, pastor, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to count to three in just a moment. When I get to three, I'm going to ask you to be really bold and courageous and shoot your hand up as high as you can if you're ready to give your life to Jesus. And I'm saying do it as soon as I get to three because the devil's going to try to talk you out of it. He's going to tell you all the reasons why you should wait till next week. But I'm telling you that we don't have a promise that we will see next week apart from Jesus. So when I get to three, if you're not saved or if you're not convinced that you're saved or if you have been saved before but you've kind of gotten away from God and you want to recommit your heart to him today, when I get to three, I'm going to ask you to shoot your hand up as high as you can. Here we go. One, two, three. Lift that hand up. Beautiful. I see that hand there. Several hands there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine hands there. Another hand there. Thank you. Another hand right there. Beautiful. Another hand there in the back. Thank you. Another hand there. One, two, three, four hands there. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Another hand there. Come on. Anybody else? Anybody else I haven't seen? Thank you. More hands right there. Anybody else would say something is telling me I need to get in on this? That's the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and lift up your hand if you haven't done so already. Nothing to be ashamed of. I promise you we're not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you to the front. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. It's going to lead you in a simple prayer right there where you are. Even if you're online. At home by yourself, still raise your hand so heaven has it on record. I'm saying yes to Jesus today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. I want you to whisper this prayer right there at your seat. Mean this with all your heart. And God's starting the process of changing your whole life right here today. Say, dear God in heaven, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. He paid the price for my sin, but you raised him from the dead. And I know he's alive now. So Jesus come into my heart now. Save me. 
forgive me, make me brand new. I surrender my life to you for the rest of my days. And according to the Bible, I am born again. Amen. Come on, Impact Church, put your hands together with us.